Hello and welcome back to Franklin Covey's newest podcast, C-Suite Conversations with Scott Miller. That's me. I am your interviewer each week. You may recognize my face or my voice as the host of Franklin Covey's other podcast, now the world's largest weekly leadership podcast, where each week I'm privileged on Leadership with Scott Miller to interview some of the world's most iconic leaders, whether they are best-selling authors, business titans, celebrities, or perhaps people that have done some remarkable research, or even sometimes survived unspeakable traumas, where they bring to that conversation remarkable insights on how to be better leaders, how to be better colleagues, better parents, better neighbors, better committee members, better human beings. And as that podcast became the world's largest in its category, what we realized is it wasn't always a superstar author or the famous celebrity who got the most downloads or the most views. It was often people like you and I and today's guest that have had quite remarkable careers, but they're relatable in terms of what they did, their their successes, and even their setbacks. And today, we've invited the president and CEO of Contour brand, Scott Baxter, to join us from the beautiful state of North Carolina. Scott, welcome to C-Suite Conversations. Thank you, Scott. Appreciate it. Nice to be here. Now, your company is known as the purveyor of some of the clothes we all have in our closet, specifically Wrangler and Lee Jeans. I would have been disappointed had you shown up in a suit. So thank you for representing (laughs) your brand well. Scott, will you rewind a little bit? We're going to talk about contour in a few minutes here and kind of all things apparel, industry trends. Will you talk about your career journey? I think everyone finds it fascinating to learn What are the steps that brought you to the C-suite? Rewind a couple of decades and talk about what brought you to the position you're in now at Contour. I'd love to. So so I've been with some big consumer companies, Nestle and Pepsi, and then uh, have been with some big retail companies like Home Depot, and then with VF Corporation, a big apparel company before Contour. And I think the key for me has been the experiences that I've gotten at each. But I think the other thing that I think about a lot for me that's really been beneficial is that I've switched industries. And by switching industries from consumer, from beverage to retail to apparel, it's really helped me gain an understanding of a broader sense of business and each of those businesses being different, being global in their own right, but having different consumer bases and different ways to go to market. They've really helped me on my journey becoming a CEO. So Scott, I'm guessing you might claim that was deliberate What would you say to people that would say, well, I think the best way to the C-suite or the best way to a board is to have deep expertise in apparel or deep expertise in consumer electronics? Or others might say, no, 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 actually, you ought to work across four or five complementary, even competitive industries to bring a more holistic view to your skill set. Do you have any advice on the upside or the downside of either of those either accidental or deliberate decisions? I think part of it is partly, Scott, who you're interviewing with and the companies that you're talking to, if they have a broader lens and a bigger sense of an executive that has that type of differential experience, which is really important. Some people don't see the bigger benefit in that. And I think that's a little bit of a shortcoming. We like that here at our company. We like folks to have that, you know, different experience and bring people in from different businesses. They just bring a a broader sense of, you know, what's happening in the world and talent and how to go to market. So I would tell people that if you have the chance to do that, if your career has maybe slowed down um, or you're not happy with what you're doing or the industry that you're in, you know, reach out and try to find a company that's progressive and will give you that chance. Scott, I'm guessing you and I are about the same age. If you would have rewinded 30 plus years ago when you were graduating from college and someone would have said to you, you have one of two paths. I want you to go deep into the sporting industry or deep into telecommunications, or I think you ought to bounce around. 
Would you have picked one? Like, was it a deliberate decision for you to be in four or five different industries, or did it kind of happen for you? And the hindsight is, yeah, that was a good thing. You know, it happened for me. But as I look back and I think about those, you know, past 30 years, Scott, I wouldn't have stayed in some of the industries. So, for instance, mm -hmm. I was in the consumer industry, Nestle and Pepsi, for the first roughly 20, 20 something years of my career, maybe the first 20. I would have moved quicker out of there as I saw the consumer industry kind of stagnate a little bit and not be nearly as dynamic. I think that um, when I got in it, it was at its really dynamic stage and then kind of changed a little bit. But I would tell, uh, you know, younger folks and folks that ask me for advice to really think about the industry that they're in and make sure that it's something that they can see for years to come, that there's a path forward for some real innovation and an exciting opportunity. And for you, from a career standpoint, so that you can have growth. So I would have moved quicker. I would have probably wanted to work internationally sooner than I did, because I think that gives you a really nice experience too. Uh, and I would have probably picked a little bit different from an industry standpoint. But you know, when you're young, you don't really understand that you do have choices you're trying to find a job, you're trying to pay off some of your student loans and your debt, and right. maybe you've met someone like I did and you're getting married at an early age, so there, there are pressures. Scott, we'll come to Contour in just a few minutes. I wanna talk about the boardroom, because it's a little mm -hmm. bit of an enigma for the vast majority of the population in the workforce, specifically being on a member of the board of directors. You are the chairperson, an executive leader of your company and of the board at Contour Brands. You are a member of the board of directors for several household names, including Lowe's, where I shop multiple times a week here in Salt Lake City, and also Callaway Golf Company, amongst other boards, not-for-profit, and other um, groups like that. Uh, demystify what happens in the boardroom. I, we know that there are committees. We know that there's a fairly strong protocol. We know that, I think in my experience, board members tend to take their compensated roles extraordinarily carefully and deliberately because at the end of the day, the board is responsible. Will you just kind of take that wherever you want to go? When the door closes to the quarterly board meeting and you've flown in to Lowe's or whatever company it is, what happens in the board of directors? And, and what, what do you want employees at the front line to know about how the board takes their, their responsibilities? I would want you know, all stakeholders to know that as a board, you really take your responsibilities very serious because you understand the shareholder perspective and how the board governs the company, uh, a close working relationship with not just the CEO, but the entire senior team. You need to, as a board member, to get to know the entire senior le leadership team mm -hmm. a couple of levels down because those are hopefully be the folks that are managing and leading the company in years to come. Succession is really important. Making sure that the company, you know, from a committee standpoint, is doing the right things that they need to do, whether it be the audit committee, the, you know, talent and compensation committee. There are certain things that need to be done, and boards can really help push that. One of the things that you know we've done a nice job at in some of the boards that I'm on, are you bringing in different experiences from leaders that are on the board? So whether it be human resources, supply chain in the world we live in right now, IT, having diversified voices in that boardroom, having different experiences in that boardroom, and having people that have the courage to stand up and make sure that things are being done correctly and utilizing your experience, right? There's nothing like your experience to go ahead and help a leadership team come through some certain challenging situations like we've had the last few years. I'm guessing there's a constant 
uh, I'll use the word tension. It's maybe the wrong word, but on, on a board, it's hard to get to know the nuances of that organization when you're uh, a member of a board and other boards and have the CEO responsible in your own company. It's difficult to get to know an executive team, perhaps of eight or 10 members and one level down. What, 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 kind of, um, what kind of specific actions do you take to maybe not stick your nose where it doesn't belong, but also know the business so that you can make well-informed decisions at the board level and guide the CEO responsibly? Yeah, one of the things that you really have to take very serious as a board member is there's a lot of information that's provided to the board. And you need to make sure that you read it all, you go through it all, and you need to make sure that you ask the questions on the things that you don't understand. So taking a real serious you know, um, amount of time and effort. I don't think people realize the energy and time that goes into being a board member. I think there are some people that, you know, naively think you just show up for meetings and that's it. Um, there's a lot more to it than that. You know, I talk to my lead director here at our board on a, on a very consistent basis. They're putting in a lot of time into this company that people don't know about. I lean on several of my board members uh, that have expertise in certain areas you know, outside of the boardroom. And then we provide our board with an incredible amount of information on the company that they need to be aware of, stay up to speed on. And if they're not, they need to ask those really tough questions to make sure that they do understand. Okay, last board question, we'll flip to Contour. Uh, there are easily tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of board members across the world, right? Fortune 5000, Inc. 5000, private companies have boards. I'd like you to think about that 40-year-old or perhaps that 50-year-old that's, you know, had a strong executive level career. They're either thinking about retiring or pivoting into the next phase of their career. And they're thinking about wanting to land some roles on a board or two or three or perhaps even four as perhaps the crescendo of their career for the next even 20 years. As you're thinking about even the 30, 40, 50-year-old that wants to be a board member in the future, what are some of the things you think they should be doing now in their career to position themselves well for a board transition, perhaps maybe the, at the last um, third of their career? Become an expert in your category and or your function. Join an association. So if you're with supply chain or HR, join the um, associations that are affiliated with your specific function. Um, if it's a general management you know, type role that you're in, try to join. There are many groups out there that cater to you know, top 100 executives, top CEOs, things like that. It's really about expanding your network. And that's what those things do. They give you a chance to meet other people that can give you an opportunity to be on a board. And then also, I would say from a pragmatic standpoint, a little bit of practice doesn't hurt. And that's where a local board, a local charity that needs help, um, somewhere, something, you know, within your state, within your city, within your community, so that you can get a little experience on what it's like to actually sit on the board and have to do some work and understand how to govern a company from a little further up. Because you're not there to run the company. That's for the CEO and the management team to do. You're there to help guide and make sure that the shareholders are being protected. Scott nicely said, actionable uh, advice. Okay, let's talk about Contour. Reorient all of our listeners and viewers around the world to the brands and the products that are part of the Contour family? So our two big brands, our two billion dollar plus brands, uh, Wrangler Jeans and Lee Jeans, we're in about 60 countries worldwide. Our biggest markets are here, the Americas, specifically the United States, and then also a very big business in Europe and Asia. Uh, we're mostly a uh, Lee brand in Asia, been in, in Asia for 30 years, in China for 30 years. We've been in Europe for over 50 years. 
Um, our brands are found in all channels, you know, within the world. And uh, we also have our own D2C and our own e-commerce. So we have our own stores throughout the world, stores in the Americas, stores in Europe, stores in Asia. And uh, we cater to a wide range of consumers. Scott, I wonder if I'm a bit of an anomaly. Well, clearly I am in many ways, but in terms of dress, I mean, this is my code, right? I mean, for 35 years, I wear cufflinks, my shoes both have laces and hold a shine, uh, and I have a lot of suit pants. I still come to the office most days like that. Has, has that changed forever post-pandemic? I mean, it's rare now in Utah, it's rare, unless you yeah. see someone who's an attorney or perhaps, you know, a CPA in town, you rarely see someone in a tie or a suit coat in Salt Lake City. You know, six-figure executives, men and women walking around, have all, you seem to have devolved into this sort of casual comfort. What is the, what do you see are the trends and maybe the, the permanent realignments of workplace dress? And maybe how is Lee and Wrangler benefiting from that? Well, what happened was that was already starting, right? So with casual Fridays and some companies that went no suits, no skirts at all, you don't need to you know, have that type of wear anymore. Um, it's done a few things. Uh, people are more comfortable in their workplace environment. Uh, people feel like they can work a little bit faster, a little bit better. They feel better about themselves. It's easier to dress in the morning than having to put a suit or a skirt on. Uh, it's much less expensive from a wardrobe standpoint. But I think what happened was the pandemic accelerated it, Scott, pretty significantly. So it's happening even in the banking. You know, we saw it in certain industries that were really slow to go ahead and adapt. And that would be in like the investment banking, um, kind of like high-end law firms, that type of thing. And now they've adapted, you know, to it really quickly too. What's happened, Scott, is, is basically, you know, people like me at my age who were used to dressing a certain way for the first 25 years of their career, we're retiring and moving on. The generation that's coming in behind us they, they didn't grow up wearing suits and skirts. Uh, they grew up in a casual environment and they're demanding that of their workplace environment now. So it's been very beneficial to us because obviously, you know, we are in that space from a, an apparel standpoint. Scott, talk about uh, the process of getting your products to market. Will you take maybe two or three minutes and just maybe water ski across you know, how do you create denim? I mean, wh wh where does it come from originally? I mean, I'm guessing it's primarily cotton. Will you just kind of walk us through the eight or 10 point highlights of how a jean starts and how it gets to your local store? What's the first point and all the way through? Sure. So, so the first point is we have design teams and, and product development teams here. So they come up with designs and ideas, and then we put those into play. And I'm going to simplify it, but we buy fabric in both the Western and Eastern Hemisphere. And we buy that fabric uh, from mills. We have big mill partners. And then that goes to either our own production facilities that we own in uh, Mexico and Nicaragua, uh, which is about 40% of our production, or some of our partners who are over in the Asia region. And then we go ahead and send that fabric over and then it's made to our specifications. And then from a distribution standpoint, it's either trucked, uh, for instance, if it's from Mexico or on a boat, if it's from Asia into the ports here in the United States and or in Europe or Asia, wherever the product is going. And then it's sent to our distribution facilities. Um, and then from there, it's either sent to a wholesale customer uh, or it's directly sent from an e-commerce digital standpoint to a customer's home. Uh, so that kind of simplifies kind of the path on how we make it and how we get it to market. Let's talk about the retail end of the business. So you lead a company that has two, at least two heritage brands, right? Lee and Wrangler. 
uh, how do you decide how you're going to sell your products, whether it be in standalone company-owned stores or through branded retailers or outlets or e-commerce? That world has changed dramatically. Uh, every year, probably, you've led the business. But how do you make a decision on the different channels you choose to sell your brands in? Yeah, it's interesting, Scott. We don't. Um, we follow the consumer. So the consumer tells us where they're shopping by how their buying patterns are emerging and what we're seeing in our business. So, you know, we have seen an increase in our digital business. Consumers are shopping a little bit more digitally. And uh, certainly we love to have our own stores so we can showcase our brands. But the consumer will make that decision and we'll follow their lead. Do you find that being in a clothing business that perhaps the returns are higher and it's a more costly, less margin uh, intensive business online because people may, like my wife shops a lot online and I remind her how expensive that is to those retailers when she chooses to return 16 of the 18 things that she bought. Talk about, talk about the downside of a, of a emerging digital business as a clothing retailer because I'm guessing this is a really you know, fit sensitive business. Well, it, it is a fit sensitive business, but I will tell you from the standpoint of what we sell, most everyone knows their jeans size, their casual pants. We make a lot of casual pants too. They know their shirt size. We make a lot of shirts and t-shirts and they know their outerwear size. So from that standpoint, and we're a product that's you know very well priced. So we're not a really expensive product. Um, people are you know in touch with their sizing, have used our product. And actually we find we have a lot of repeat customers. So they already know their size in a pretty significant way. We of course deal with returns like everybody else, but because of the nature of the product we make, price points that we have, how long we've been in business, how long our consumers have been with us. Uh, for us, it's a very nice business to be in. What's the upside and the downside of leading a heritage brand versus you've created a brand new product with no brand equity and you're you know, bringing it from zero awareness to high, in essence, your competition is you know, no consumption of it versus a brand like yours that most people have some perspective, opinion about your brand. What are the ups and the downs of managing brands that have strong equity, perhaps you know, positive or negative for some buying audience? The, the upside is the equity. So you, you touched on it. You know, there's an affiliation and an appreciation and knowledge and awareness. The downside is that when we spun off from the parent company we were with, you know, we hadn't invested in the brands from a marketing or design standpoint for a very long time. So there's potential there, right? So the brands had enough of a following, had enough equity, and had enough goodwill that once we started really selling and making better product and listening to our consumer and putting greater and better stories together around using our product and being part of our family, then we really saw the consumer took hold. But it's on us to continue that. So we need to continue to innovate and tell better stories and design better products as we go forward. But I will tell you, it's been a journey for a few years to get to where we need to be. Um, and that's costly. You know, you're investing back in the brand from a marketing and advertising standpoint, hiring great talent, you know, designers and, and product folks, so merchants. Uh, Scott, I'm going to ask you to get out your crystal ball. You're not an economist. You're not a, a soothsayer. But I want to have you talk about what you see as the headwinds or the tailwinds in the coming couple of months. We're taping this interview the very beginning of the new year in 2023. It'll air very shortly after our taping within a couple of weeks or so. Uh, what do you see as the headwinds that most business leaders should be thinking about? Recently, a jobs report came out in the U.S., very strong job, job growth. 
We still see the Fed raising interest rates. It looks like the housing market is still you know, tight in many places. Inflation is still high and perhaps increasing in some areas. Gas has come down a little bit. Food has remained high and continuing to increase. Anything that you see on the horizon that you think business leaders should be taking very seriously in terms of a, a headwind? And is there anything that you're encouraged about that you think people might get, um, I don't want to say excited about, but be preparing for uh, to capitalize on? So in no particular order, the things yeah. that I think that we need to be really cognizant of or be thinking about, I think we need to solve the war that's going on right now in Ukraine. Uh, that has caused amazing disruption that, that um, I'm sure some people and, and maybe someone who doesn't have um, a business that relies on supply chains around the world wouldn't be completely aware of how disruptive that war has been, um, very disruptive for the European Union. So as I think about things that need to happen because we're a global company, I would love to see that solved for the humanitarian reasons and also so that things can you know, kind of come back to normal from a supply chain standpoint. Very important, uh, very important for Europe, very important for the world. So that would be one thing. Interest rates here in the United States, so getting people back to feeling and, and having a comfort in borrowing and that being businesses and individuals will be really important. I'm encouraged by the fact that supply chains around the world are slowly getting back to a little bit of normalcy. And we have seen, and I think the whole world has seen some examples and stories in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal about you know some things in supply chain being a little less costly. And then from an Asia standpoint, I think that we have to get through you know, the folks working their way through the, the pandemic in that now that they're out and moving about, a lot of folks seem to be getting it. Hopefully it's very mild. And once they get their confidence back and make their way through that, I think Asia and China specifically can start to restore confidence in their, you know, economy. So something each a little bit different in each of the big global parts of the world that we do business, Europe, you know, the Americas and, and, and Asia. And if there's harmony and all those things can happen, you know, together over the next year to 18 months, and we can all see progress in all three of those things, I think we're in for a dynamic period post the period that we're in right now. 23 might be a little lumpy, but 24 and 25 could look pretty pretty spectacular if some of those things can come into play. I appreciate you keeping the conversation on, on Ukraine at the forefront. It's a humanitarian disaster, and um, right will always triumph. Uh, you mentioned the pandemic. And the, and the supply chain issues. How did the pandemic change you as a leader? Well, it really changed from the standpoint of not being able to see people for two years. And, and I really disliked it. You know, um, I love seeing our folks. I love being around our talent. I love talking to our folks, being in the office and seeing everyone. I truly believe there is a a workplace dynamic that has changed, you know, uh, whether it be the casualization, whether it being a little bit more flexibility in the workplace, which is fine. I think it's going to be good for all. But I am a huge component and really believe in, in us being here together so that we can go ahead and work as a team together. Um, you know, you couldn't have a sports team that didn't come all together for their games, right? So we have big moments. We have big games. We have big presentations, big customer things. We need to be here together to do those things. So I missed that. I like being back. Um, I'm enjoying it greatly. And, and I'm at the end of my career too, right? So, you know, I'm 58 years old. I don't have 20 more years left. And uh, the thought of not being around people for the last few years, I'm thrilled that I'm back and that we're back because it was, uh, it was lonely. Okay, that was insulting because I'm 54 and I'm nowhere near the end of my career because I have an eight-year-old, a 10-year-old, and a 12-year-old. So I can't see any into it. Thanks a lot, Scott. Uh, let's get vulnerable as paybacks. 
uh, paybacks sure. are, you know what. Uh, let's talk about your leadership style. I want you to show uh, an unusual level of humility, vulnerability, and self-awareness. When a member of your executive team would critique critically, negatively, your leadership style, something you do that frustrates people that you know, yeah. what is that? Oh, I think it's, um, for me, especially when I was younger, how quickly I moved from project to project or, or uh, priority to priority. I think that as you get a little bit older and a little more experienced, you understand that people take a lot of pride in the work that they do and they want to spend a lot of time telling you about it and working through it and having you understand it. Where I would, I would want to take that meeting, they would want an hour, I'd want 15 minutes. I'd want to work and get to the next priority and the next project because, you know, you're working to get ahead and you're working, you know, to strive and push and, and press forward. Uh, now I take a lot more time to be empathetic, to understand what they're working on and how they're working on it and how they can be successful and let them tell their story. I think everybody's individual story is really important and having the ability to tell your individual story to the, to the people that you have to report to in the company is really, really healthy for you as an individual. Scott, you misunderstood the question. I didn't ask you to talk about my leadership challenges. I wanted you to talk about your leadership challenges because the production team is riotously laughing at you describing my leadership style right now. Uh, let's yeah. the other side of that, the other side of that. Is there something that you've done in your own career that was maybe a pivot point that accelerated your influence, your credibility, your acumen, that regardless of someone's natural proclivities towards or away from math or conceptual versus creative thinking, is there something replicable that you've done that everyone listening to this podcast around the world can say, okay, I can do that. Let me start doing that today so I can mirror Scott's remarkable success. Sure. I think the, the thing, and, and this is what's important to boards, right? And this is really what's important to CEOs and, and people like myself, is that I've been jettisoned into some very troubled businesses in my career um, in, in, you know, prior to my time coming to Contour. And I think that's what's really helped me from a Contour standpoint. And I've been successful in turning those businesses around and putting them back on the right track. And I think that, you know, um, Probably when when the um, company looked at who who they needed to run a business that wasn't troubled, I would never use that word because it was just not invested in, and it needed someone to think about it differently. I was the right candidate to do that. Uh, so I think I think you know there are people that are really good at fixing things. There are people that are really good at prioritizing. There are people like me who live and die off of a list all day long, and they've got to check it and got to move on to the next thing. Uh, and those those types of folks can be very helpful when a business is troubled and, and in need of leadership. And that was probably something that I did well earlier in my career that's been very helpful for me from a progression standpoint. Scott, let's end with you giving me some parenting advice. Uh, I mentioned my wife and I live here in Salt Lake City. We have three young boys that are 8, 10, yeah. and 12. And yeah. as the CEO and a member of uh, some of the biggest boards in terms of brands in the world, I want you to tell me what kind of skills are you imploring, insisting that Stephanie and I instill into our sons when Wrangler and Lee is ready to hire them eight, 10, 12 years from now? What kind of skills are they going to need, both in terms of you know, academic, technical, and perhaps you know, social, emotional skills? What do they need to master in the next eight to 10 years to build a great career for themselves inside the companies that you lead? Uh uh, very interesting question and thrilled you asked it. So I have one 17-year-old and, and he was born when both my wife and I were 40 years old and, and we had already been married for 17 years. 
So we had had a, a life and a history together. Wait, your pre- marriage survived 17 years of a new baby? That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So here we are in our, our late 50s, and he's a teenager now. And I think the thing for me is that I'm fortunate that I didn't have my son when I was prior to that because I was a very aggressive career climber. So I wanted to get ahead. And I spent a lot of time at work. I still do and have to. But I think if you did talk to the folks that work for me, I think they would tell you that I prioritized my family first. And I, and I encourage my folks to do that. I think if my son would tell you anything, I think he'd tell you, I don't miss anything. My folks know I, I go to events and I just figure out how to do the work later or do the work earlier. Or I've been on phones at ball fields and I've been on you know phones at, at plays that I've had to walk out of and take a call, but I'm still physically there. And I think that he understands that we have his back and that we're there and that we're there for him. And I think the other thing that's been really interesting for us being older parents is that we have adult conversations with him. So on a nightly basis, on a daily basis, we really talk to him like he's a peer in some respects and, and have really, really good you know, logical discussions with him about what's going on in my work, what's going on in my wife's life, what's going on with our broader families. And we're not afraid to talk about the failures that we've had and the failures that we see in our families and the successes that we've had. So uh, maybe some conversations that are, you know, some people might think a little too adult, you know, for his age, but I think it's going to bode well for him as he moves forward. And, uh, you know, I, I would tell you, Half of parenting is just showing up. I see people that just, they don't show up. They find excuses not to be there. I'll go to a ball game and, and I'll look around and, and I'm a CEO of a big company and I'll see a few parents there or what have you. And, and may, it might even be a Saturday. And, and I hear that there's other things, other priorities like, you know, golf or tennis or, or other stuff like that. You know, we just, we prioritize, you know, what's important to us and that's important to us. And if you can show up, a lot can happen good. Scott, it's great advice. Take it one step further for me. Get kind of tactical on uh, when you're interviewing, say you're, you probably wouldn't be doing this, but if, if Contour was interviewing some college graduates, right, which I'm sure you do to come into the business, mm-hmm. what, are the, what are the actual competencies and skills in terms of uh, both kind of technical skill and also the, the soft skill side, known as the power skills, the hard skills and the power skills. What are you, what are you concerned about or what do you think what are the skills that give college graduates or high school graduates an edge that you want parents to be focused on in teaching their kids? What's missing or what, what separates the new hire from someone else? I talk to my son about this all the time, and it's part of what I said. Be able to talk to an adult like an adult. Be able to converse with an adult. I, I do, and I, I mentor you know, younger folks, and I have parents that ask me to talk to their kids. And I have kids who come in here, younger people who come in here, they don't look me in the eye. They don't have adult conversations. They say really silly, immature things, even at the age of 22, 23, 24 years old. Yeah. Uh, what I'm impressed by is a, a young person who comes in, looks me in the eye, has an adult conversation, talks about adult topics, talks about you know really worthy topics, and, and has a point of view. So many times I see you know younger folks, they don't have a point of view. They're just telling you what you want to hear. They don't talk and act like an adult. If you can go ahead and give your children anything, give them the ability to go ahead and operate individually in this world we live in right now and be able to carry their own on a conversation you know, with their peers and with adults. Such valuable advice. Scott Baxter, president and CEO of Contour. You, of course, know them, the family from, from Wrangler and Lee Jeans and all their other products as well. Thanks for joining us today. Appreciate you taking the time to invest in our viewers and our listeners. You bet. Thank you, Scott. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation from the C-Suite.